0: So last week, Pastor Matt introduced us to King Ahab, uh, who was quite legendary, as we heard, in terms of his evil that he was able to do, and that he had committed before God. So I would like to continue and give us another little scenario in King Ahab's life, and then I would like to bring alongside that our passage from Luke, and to try to juxtapose both of these passages this morning. Both are very dramatic narratives. Um, And I hope they'll spark a little bit of our thinking this morning. So if I were to put a title on this sermon, I would say, Amazed by Grace. So in the 21st chapter of 1 Kings, we encounter Ahab again. Now apparently, not only did Ahab have a reputation for doing evil in the sight of God, he was also something of a builder. And he had a number of residences. And apparently he had one particular residence in Jezreel that was his favorite palace. Now, one commentary said that this might have been because this particular palace was lower in elevation and it would have been warmer in the winter, so this was probably his winter palace. But the fact that he had multiple palaces are a symbol of the fact that he had wealth, luxury, and had indulged in both. Now, it happened that right next to this land that he had, that his palace in Jezreel, there was another person who had a small vineyard, a man by the name of Naboth. Now, this land was Naboth's ancestral inheritance. It had been in his family for many, many generations. It defined who he was, it gave him a place in the community and it signaled that he and his family were deeply connected to those who had gone before him. So King Ahab looks over this land and he says, ah, this would make a wonderful little vegetable garden for my palace. So he decides to go to Naboth and say okay, I'll exchange for another vineyard or maybe even will I'll give you money um, in place of your particular vineyard. I really want your vineyard." But for Naboth, this isn't some simple monetary transaction. It's not that Ahab needed to sweeten the pot and he would give in. Naboth's response was interesting. He said, the Lord forbid. This land is my ancestral inheritance. He could not make the deal. So in his view, this land was a gift from God. It was for his family. It was to be tended, to be treasured, and it signified the livelihood that he could provide for his family. And it also signified his position as a free citizen. So he said no to the king, and the king went back to the palace, and he salt, and he pouted. And his queen, Queen Jezebel, that we heard about last week as well, um, went to him and said, what's wrong? And tried to get some sense of what was going on. And Ahab said to her, well, Naboth refused to give me his land. He didn't explain, he didn't say anything about the fact that this was ancestral inheritance. He just said he had refused. And Jezebel, as we saw last week, who was a Canaanite and a Baal worshiper, didn't have a uh, great concern over Jewish law, and she really didn't understand what Naboth was trying to say to King Ahab, nor did Ahab try to explain it to her. So she says to him, this is an affront. You're the king. You should have this land. I'll take care of it. And so she begins to hatch this plan, where she could then make sure that the king gets this little vineyard. After all, he was the king. After all, he felt he deserved it. So she puts this plan in motion where they have a public gathering, Naboth is brought to a place of honor, and then two people who had been confederates in this plan accused uh, Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. And according to Jewish law, if you had two that accused you of something, then it must be so. So her plan really went very, very smoothly, and she ended up uh, getting Naboth accused, and the penalty for this was to be stoned. So Naboth was taken outside and was stoned. And this opened the way for Ahab to walk right in and take this property. Now, at this point, we have Elijah coming in, and we saw Elijah last week as well. Elijah had done a lot of battle with the prophets from Baal, and there had been this uh, tremendous uh, contest to see which god was going to be the stronger. Uh, And despite the fact that Elijah won, that his sacrifice was burnt, and God honored Elijah's prayers, um, The Baal worship was still very, very strong, and Jezebel's influence was still very strong. But Elijah goes to Ahab and lays out the whole thing, tells him what he had done, and tells him what the consequences are, and they are dire consequences. And in the face of all that, Ahab repents, and he asks God for mercy. And it's interesting that where Naboth wasn't willing to give any mercy to Naboth or any justice to Naboth, he was begging for mercy when it came to his turn to have to deal with situations beyond his control. So Ahab repents, God spares his life in a totally merciful act. Now, this story helps us to understand some very important themes. Ahab was bent on taking what wasn't his to take, despite the cost to Naboth. Naboth knew he had received a gift of his land from a gracious God, and he received it with thanks. For Ahab, this parcel of land was simply land to be consumed for his own pleasure. He needed it. He wanted it. He felt like he deserved it as a king. For Naboth, it was an inheritance from a gracious God. So The story helps us to think about a couple of very, very important words. Justice, mercy, and grace. The Jewish people had clamored for a king to be a source of order and justice, and it is pretty ironic. That King Ahab did gave them none of those things. So we see the justice, mercy, and grace being illustrated a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday school class, Siska talked about the definitions for these words. And that has really stuck with me. It has really, I've been thinking about it, and it's really meant a lot. And this story gets us into thinking about these issues as well, and so does the story in Luke that we'll be talking about in just a moment. Justice is getting what you deserve, or what is rightfully yours. Now, Sometimes that's a very positive thing. And Naboth deserved justice. This land was his. He deserved to have it protected because it was given to him by God. But Ahab was not interested in justice for, for uh, Naboth. But when, they, when Ahab was in a situation where he needed justice and mercy, he didn't want justice. He didn't want to be charged when he should have been charged. He wanted mercy. So the definition for mercy is not getting what we deserve. So if justice is getting what we deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace goes the next step. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in God's grace, Ahab, not only, you know, he repented, God spared him, but he actually had several more years before he died in battle. God's last word was grace. And so it is for us, thankfully, that God in his love doesn't mete out justice. For us, that would mean our demise. But in his mercy and his grace, we can not only experience forgiveness, but in graciousness receive the gift of abundant life and participation in God's new kingdom. But we have another story this morning, and you heard that just a few moments ago. And it's a story from Luke's Gospel, and it too has some fascinating contrasts within it. So we have Jesus being invited to the home of Simon, who was a Pharisee. Jesus comes into this dinner, and typically at that time, a dinner would have been at a lower table and they would have been sort of reclining kind of on one elbow with their legs extending out from the table. Typically also at this time, the public could come into the house. That was an okay thing for them to do. So you have this situation where Simon invites Jesus to dinner, and they're kind of laying there uh, by the table. Now, Simon as a Pharisee was a scrupulous follower of the law. He kept the law to its finest detail and probably felt pretty secure in his sense of righteousness since he performed all the rituals, he kept the law, and he offered all of the appropriate sacrifices. Things were pretty well in hand in terms of Simon's ideas. I wonder if anybody noticed this woman outside of Simon's house. I wonder if anyone noticed her standing there, trying to figure out what was she going to do. Should I go inside? Should I stay outside? Will I be thrown out? Will I be ignored? Will I be rejected? She was used to pretty rough treatment. She was known as a woman of the streets. She knew what it was to be shunned, to be overlooked. What would Simon say? What would Jesus say? So There must have been some point as she was standing outside of this house when the scales were tipped and she thought, I will go inside. She dared to enter the Pharisee's home. Now, for many, this would seem like really extreme uh, ends of the continuum, with righteousness being on one side and unrighteousness being on the other. As soon as she enters, she is overcome with emotion. The tears begin to flow and she can't contain herself. They stream down her face and they flow onto the feet of Jesus. And her response is to let her hair down to try to wipe off the feet from the tears that were flowing. This was not customary for Jewish women to let their hair down, so she is sort of breaking sort of some of the customs here. She began to wipe his feet with her hair, and then she began to kiss his feet. And then she took a small alabaster flask that had perfumed oil in it precious perfumed oil, and she poured it over his feet. This was an extravagant, extravagant expression of overwhelming gratitude and love. Now, we don't know whether this woman had come in contact with Jesus before or whether she had just heard about his message from other people, but she clearly came into this house having a deep sense of humility and a deep understanding of what might happen for her. Her actions flowed from deep humility and inexpressibly deep gratitude. But as we watch this scene, our eyes sort of catch Simon. Simon's sort of taking all of this in. And he's thinking to himself, Jesus can't be much of a prophet if he doesn't know what kind of woman this person is if he did he wouldn't allow this he wouldn't allow her to touch him he wouldn't allow her to be here simon simply saw the chasm between himself and this woman this was an affront this was an outrage you know what is jesus going to do about all of this so he was probably quite prepared to usher this woman outside after all he didn't want to be contaminated He deserved Jesus' attention. He had invited Jesus to dinner at his house. In some ways, he's a little bit like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, whose anger erupted over the compassion and forgiveness that the father had shown to the younger brother. Nowen suggests in his book, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, resentment and gratitude cannot. Coexist, since resentment blocks the perception and experience of life as a gift. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. Now, the fascinating thing is that Jesus knew exactly who this woman was. And she also, he also knew who Simon was. So Jesus gives voice to Simon's thoughts and proceeds to tell Simon a parable. A parable about two debtors. One owed 50 denarii, and a denarii would have been about a day's wage. And the other owed 500 denarii. They both were freely forgiven. Neither one could repay their debts. But Jesus asked Simon, who do you think loved the creditor more? And Simon responds, well, you know, the person that he had forgiven more. Simon wasn't getting it. Jesus turns to Simon and asks a very piercing question. He says, do you see this woman? Simon do you really see this woman? This woman who was used to being ignored, pushed aside, scorned. Do you see this woman? Can you only see her for what she has been in the past? Can you envision a future for her? And Jesus then responds to her. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith is has saved you, go in peace. Jesus turns to Simon and says, As a guest in your house, you didn't provide any way for me to wash my feet. She washed them with her tears. You didn't give me the customary welcoming kiss. She kissed my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with oil. From the perspective of the parable, Simon didn't really see that he needed much forgiveness and thus loved little. For those who don't see themselves in need of forgiveness, it's easy to dismiss others who are overwhelmed with joy and gratitude at the experience of forgiveness. Simon couldn't acknowledge his own need for forgiveness and couldn't share in the joy that this woman felt. He felt his keeping of the law, his following of the rules, had earned him his righteous position. For him, righteousness was there for the doing and the taking. Similar to Ahab. It was there because he deserved it. For this woman, forgiveness was possible only by receiving it. She knew she had a debt too great to pay on her own. She understood forgiveness to be a gift to be responded to in joy and gratitude. And Luke helps us to see that forgiveness didn't come because she bought it with perfume. She responded out of love as she received the gift of forgiveness. Her great love shows her sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness, after all, is God's idea. It is God's initiative. Norman Chachuk writes, The love of God dawns upon us, and with it comes a most amazing promise and a new hope. What we cannot redeem, God can. And what we cannot erase, God will. so Luke, as he so often does, he sort of flips the tables on things. And we realize it's really Simon who is in greater need of forgiveness, but he can't see it. His resentment, his pride, stand in his way. Whether sins are many or few, really is quite irrelevant. Forgiveness is a gift to be received with joy, just as Naboth had received his gift of his land from God, with joy, with gratitude. So we receive a gift of forgiveness with joy. It's not a matter of earning it. It's not a matter of doing enough right things, keeping enough right rules. We receive it totally as the gift of God who in his mercy and grace goes beyond what we justly deserve and gives us a future we can't imagine. In Ephesians, the second chapter, we read, But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because the woman understood her unworthiness, she was amazed by grace. Because Simon couldn't recognize his need for forgiveness, he couldn't share in the joy of grace. Now, it often happens that adoration then shifts quite naturally into service. For this woman, the words, Go in peace, must have been extraordinary. She had known so little peace in her life. These words had invited her to a totally different life, a totally different future. Reuben Job makes a statement, Once we invite God's transforming presence into our lives, the necessary power to change comes with the transforming presence. Conversion is a lifelong process of turning more and more fully toward God in all that we are, possess, and do. So these words are spoken to us as well today. They seek an active, participatory, and faithful response to God's initiative of forgiveness and transforming love. Your sins are forgiven, which is God's work. Your faith has saved you, which is our participation. Go in peace, which compels us to actively respond to God's transforming presence and his gracious gift of abundant life. So the question I would like to close with this morning is what will you do with the grace you have been given? How will this grace inspire and empower you to actively participate in God's kingdom? Amen.